All right, Ramos, we are, we're back in the hot seat. We're back in the podcast hot seat. Are you ready? Indeed we are, brother. I'm so excited. It's good to have you back and, and hear your voice again. And, yeah. And, you know, people are watching the podcast, so they can't see you, but I can see your beautiful face <laughs> and, yeah, and your nice background there yeah. and everything. So, But I'm excited to just, uh, to you know, we did some guests and... Uh, but it's good to it's good to be back with you, brother. Yeah, likewise, likewise. I missed you. It's good to see. Uh, it's good. It's you know, it feels good to be back in our studio. We'll use that in air quotes for now. <laughs> That's right. But you've been busy. I mean, you've been mm-hmm. all over the place, right? And you've had special guest appearances. Ken Ham's been on our transhuman ep- epi- transhumanism episode from from episode six was really well. We've been talking about that a lot, actually, uh, you know, with various people and at church. And um, man, let's yeah. let's do some housekeeping. Let's catch everyone up on where we're at. And then we'll dive in yeah. to heaven. Because I know, I know even that is a bit of a housekeeping item because we've covered heaven in the past. But there's some specific reasons about why we need to dive into that today. So we'll get to that in a second. But let's do some housekeeping items. Yeah. Um, you've been around. Catch us up a little bit. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, you know, we did a little family vacation down in Southern California. Now, some people would be like, why would you do a vacation in Southern California? No <laughs> but Trish and I, you know, Trish and I and my mother-in-law went. And of course, our daughter was, you know, uh, having so much fun down there. But we go to a little spot uh, down in Newport Beach. It's really cool. Uh, walk on the cliffs. And it's just kind of, it's a really nice place uh, to be. Uh, but... Uh, I was down there for a dual purpose. We did some family time, but I actually was in studio with Living Waters, Ray Comfort's ministry, and we recorded a few episodes on transhumanism, and those went well. Um, And I just was excited to be able to raise more awareness, get more people talking about this conversation that you know uh, is important to me and to a lot of the stuff that, you know, I've been working on this issue and studying this issue now for a while. So it's just great whenever I get to uh, share this information and begin to like create more uh, uh, more of a conversation about this subject that's so important. Uh, but we, you know, we've also been working really hard on the Peter Jones film that people know nothing about, <laughs> not yet. Uh, but we're basically, you know, we're, we're almost completely done with production. It should be coming to a place where we can begin to advertise, and then, of course, eventually we will release it. Uh, so that's exciting. That's like a huge project that's kind of off my shoulders now, and that will allow me to just focus on other stuff. We've got some other stuff that we're working on, um, even for next year. Uh, you know, the, the the podcast I did with Ken Ham, uh, after that conversation with Ken, we talked about doing a a conference at the ARC on transhumanism, and that's coming together. So we're just working towards a lot of, a lot of really exciting things. But uh, I'll actually be in um, uh, uh, Kentucky for the pastors conference at the Ark with Ken Ham uh, next week. Actually, the f- October fourth through the sixth, I'll be there uh, uh, delivering a message for a very important subject: a culture and church in crisis. And uh, got some really great speakers that are going to be joining us for that. So that's going to be a really great opportunity. But um, And you know, we had Lane Tipton on the show, and that was really important for me 
uh, to, to, to really develop the theology of Dr. Tipton and what he's done for, for Vantilian uh, theology, which, you know, we on the website, if you go to redgracemedia.com, you'll see it's, it's advertised as exclusive content because it is pr- much more advanced content. So, you know, uh, but it was a lot of fun. So that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. Th- yep. I mean, to get GK Beal and his, his crazy schedule to a lineup to the degree that you're able to do a podcast, definitely exclusive stuff, right? That that's important. Yeah. Beal as well. Yeah. GK Beal as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely brother. But today, you know, we're talking about a lot of other good theology as well. Very necessary. Definitely. Definitely. Well, we, we previously talked about, to catch us up, we talked about heaven and interdimensional theology. And uh, even in, mm. in one of your recent sermons, you kind of made a joke that we actually said those words together, heaven and interdimensional <laughs> theology, right? It's so easy to mess up, but important, <laughs> right? And I think if you haven't listened to that, to our, to our faithful listeners out there, go back, give it a listen. It's important to listen to that, I think, as a prerequisite to what we're going to talk about today because there there's just there's never a dull moment right when it comes to anything we can talk about when it comes to Christ and kingdom and so for today uh what we really need to to start peering into is whether or not there is a pernicious hearsay afoot is the doctrine of heaven being eroded are we developing a worldly theology that contradicts scripture is it possible to exaggerate the hope of heaven. A lot of those topics and those questions we need to really unpack in in today's episode. So it's going to be a busy one, but it's going to be a good one. Where should we start, Ramos? Where should we start in this as we start to navigate through this particular topic? Uh, Yeah, so heaven is a remarkably important part of Christian theology, one that has been radically neglected uh, and one that I would say today uh, is really has really been uh, neglected to the point where I don't know if Christians at a practical level, and even as they're developing theology, I don't know how uh, how important Christians actually view the doctrine of heaven. Mm. Um, I, I think that they think that heaven is something you tack on at the very end when the real conversation about theology is over. Right. And you just kind of you kind of throw it in at the very end of the conversation to say something like, "Oh yeah, and then in the end we go to heaven." <laughs> so 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 that's about as much as as much press as heaven often gets. And so when you mentioned this pernicious heresy, uh is there a pernicious heresy afoot in the church today? And I don't know, I don't, you know, I wouldn't say yes emphatically, but I would say that there is certainly a neglect of a very precious doctrine in the doctrine of heaven, where Christians have instead focused on a very heavily kind of this-worldly theology, so that what's happening, I think, is that for many Christians— they don't know, are we supposed to emphasize more of what we're doing here in this world, our culture, this time, the 21st century, politics, what's going on here? Or, you know, or, or and, and, and at that point, like, what do we do with the doctrine of heaven? Does it even matter? Is it even practical? Do we even talk about it? When was the last time people went to church? 
and received a sustained series on the doctrine of heaven. Uh, and so, in one sense, Ryan, I just think Christians, we're not good at having a sustained thought about heaven. Uh, it seems like we come down out of that very quickly. Um, and maybe there's some practical reasons for that. I don't know what you think, but maybe there's practical reasons for that. Maybe the book of Revelation is too difficult. Uh, there's too much speculation. We don't know what the nature of heaven is. And so people tend to kind of say like, oh, who knows? Like people in a sense, people are becoming eschatological agnostics at that point and just say like, whatever, we'll find out what heaven is really like in the end anyway, so what's the use talking about it now? But the question we're asking, Ryan, is what, what importance does the doctrine of heaven have, not just for your life, but for your theology, and those things go together? Yeah, it, we, it can't be forsaken, and it can't be downplayed, and we certainly can't get misinterpretations swerving about and it's easy to do, right? It's certainly easy to do, depending on who's teaching and, and what's being taught. And there's no, there's no shortage of topics that can actually infiltrate someone's understanding. So let's dive into one right now that I'd love to have you unpack a, a lot more. And, and that, would be con, that would be Christian Reconstructionism. Um, hmm. Said another way, are we obligated to rebuild this world into a Christian utopia? Let's let's mingle there for for a little bit on on those. Well, I think that the language of utopia hmm. is is obviously very important because there's a lot of conversations going on in the culture about that precise issue. Yeah. Um, whether you know, it's so funny how all these subjects converge, right? Right. But we start, you know, even we, I mean, we were talking a minute ago about transhumanism and futurism and things like that. And if you immerse yourself in the transhumanist literature, like I'm doing, um, the language of utopia, in a sense, quote-unquote, is everywhere. Uh, what they're saying is that, obviously, through technology, we're going to arrive at a better world, a more ideal world, a safer world, a world where there's going to be more prosperity, there's going to be a healthier world uh, because of technology and things like that. And then the question becomes, like, how do Christians play into this futuristic ideal and this vision for what one futurist calls the event horizon, right? Where we, we, we cross a certain technological threshold um, from which we cannot go back, in a sense. And couple that together with what other people have said in terms of advancing humanity and going forward and making progress and going to the next level of evolution for mankind and things like that. But from the biblical perspective, a lot of that language is eschatological, talking about progress, talking about advancement, talking about a better world, a new world. I mean, we talked about the Humanity Plus website, you know what I mean? And that's all about a new humanity. Well, a new humanity is exactly what the Bible says Jesus is doing through the gospel and, and through the church. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, he is creating one new man, one new humanity. 
And so that language is very important, man. And so I think for a lot of Christians, the, the question of Reconstructionism that goes back to thinkers like Rush Dooney and Gary North and Greg Bonson, uh, particularly as it has to do with theonomy and postmillennialism, then that becomes a very relevant conversation. You know what I mean? And the question then boils down to, what exactly is the mission of the church? Well, in the Reconstructionist vision, the church is to redeem not just souls— but we're to redeem the culture. And so suddenly our uh, understanding of the Great Commission, for example, begins to change, where um, Jesus says, you know, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go make disciples of all nations, you know, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you, right? Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. You know, the, that, that Great Commission, uh, you know, that, that saying by, by the risen Christ— Uh, then becomes interpreted to say, well, the nations there refer not only to people out of those nations, but it refers to the nation itself, like the the system, uh, the governance, uh, the institutions of that nation, and that those things need to be redeemed and Christianized. And so then all of a sudden, the mission of the church is not just evangelical, it's not just evangelistic. It's not just missionary activity anymore. Now it's now you have to start um, understanding that as political. Uh, uh, you need to restructure the education system, the economic system. Uh, you need to start getting involved in the arts, uh, redeeming entertainment, right? Everything, every aspect of life. And of course, like I said, some of the forefathers of this way of thinking— um, you know, would make these bombastic statements about how powerful. I remember listening to Greg Bonson years ago. I mean, this is twenty over twenty years ago. I remember watching an old VHS cassette tape, <laughs> a VHS tape, watching Greg Bonson man in this crusty old video, where Bonson says, "I believe the gospel is so powerful it will conquer the earth." And what he meant by that is it's it, not that it will save people, but that the vast majority of humankind will get saved in the end. Uh, and this is, you know, this gets into postmillennialism and the golden age and those kinds of things. But I think what it does is it, it begins to take our understanding of the Great Commission in a whole different direction. And maybe, uh, Ryan, if I can push back on that a little bit, uh, through the apostolic uh, pattern of executing the Great Commission. If you look at the Apostle Paul, as he, um, as in, in my opinion, as he obeys the Great Commission in Acts chapter 14, we are told exactly what he does. And actually, the very word is used here, Ryan, make disciples, exactly like in Matthew 28, right? This exact phenomenon. Maybe not exact uh, Greek formulation, but in Acts 14, 19, all the way through that context of verse 23, you have the Apostle Paul there preaching the gospel, making disciples, and then what? Moving on. <laughs> so he didn't wait to Christianize the fishing industry. In, <laughs> he, he didn't wait to, to <laughs> he didn't wait to Christianize, you know. The fabric district, you know, there. 
He, he didn't wait to Christianize the Colosseum. He made disciples, and then we know that he appointed elders, you see? Yeah. And he, and he placed pastors in every city so that they would have a healthy church, and he moved on. And so for the Apostle Paul, a faithful execution of the Great Commission consisted of enveloping the elect, if you want to just go right to the very, right, get right to the theological talk, right, and think soteriologically, right? So bringing the elect into the church faithfully to be part of the ecclesiastical reality of the body of Christ, and his job was done. Uh, And he could walk out of Lystra, he can leave Iconium in Antioch with a clear conscience that he had fulfilled the mandate that God had placed upon him. So I I think something like that is is very important, And, and the reason we're talking about this, of course, is because Christian Reconstructionism explicitly calls for a this-worldly philosophy of the kingdom of God. And it's not that they don't believe in heaven, but there is an emphasis that does tend to change the focus of the Christian. Certainly does. You know, when I think of the idea of utopia or a better world, right? It it just reminds me of a really cheap pamphlet or some propaganda that you'd see in a futuristic city that's like a better world today. But, you know, if if you saw that and you knew your Bible and you went and read 2 Peter, you'd realize that this quote-unquote better world today is about to be destroyed by fire. (laughs) So (laughs) hot elements being, or the elements being consumed by by a blazing fire. And even to your point of, of Paul being clear in conscience of his mission, when he's writing to Timothy, he's not telling Timothy to go and fix his local government, right, or fix any, you know, economic system within his local government. He's, he's you know, he's encouraging this, this young pastor. So all of these things to say that, um, to your point, it does seem like you can really go off mission very quickly, and it turns into a I don't know, a social activist movement, per se, with some Christian theology sprinkled in. So you, so you have it, right? And it's, it becomes less about saving the soul and more about saving the system. Uh, does that, that sounds like what you're, you're saying, right? Is that a right summary? Yeah, no, I think you're right. And when you, when you reference Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, the elements melting with fervent heat, those kinds of passages, right, versus... Yeah. Uh, 9 through, 9 through 11, and then all the way up to 13, because it mentioned a new creation, you, then you have, to, you have to reinterpret that passage. It can't yeah. possibly refer to the disillusion of the world. It can't possibly refer to the absolute end. It has to refer to something else. And so, of course, Reconstructionists, post-millennialists, theonomists, they would want to follow the exegesis, let's say, of uh, John Owen, who calls that uh, kind of apocalyptic, cataclysmic language that relates to the end of the Old Covenant. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would just say, when you do the intertextuality, in my opinion, that falls apart, and it is a Perusia passage, a second coming passage. And so I, I just think at that point, you begin to kind of force... Uh, a foreign exegesis upon scripture 
And so, I, yeah, I, I just think that, that 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 is one of the ways that that is done, and it does result in a different focus. Um, it does, you know, for some people, they try to pawn this off in the language of, well, we're going to take over, we're going to exercise dominion, you know, and those kinds of things. Um, maybe we'll talk about that in a moment here, but, uh, you know, it, 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 some Christians feel invincible with a message and a theology that says Christians will gain the upper hand in this world inevitably until every last nation is brought under Christ's dominion and rule and authority and his law. And for, uh, for others like myself, I would say that, that that vision ultimately fails the test of, of Scripture, exegesis, and theology— uh, but uh, but that is some of the ways in which that's done. Mm, yeah. And, you know, j- just to be exhaustive with this, does the Bible even promise the emergence of a new Christian theocracy of sorts? And, and if not, what would you say the purpose of theocracy even is today? Oh, that's the golden—I mean, that's the, that's the million-dollar question right there, mm-hmm. uh, Ryan— when we talk about theocracy, we we really only have one theocracy to talk about, which is the theocracy in ancient Israel. But then it becomes a question of what was the purpose of that theocracy? Why was a theocracy given in the first place? And this is where um, I would follow somebody like Meredith Klein. Um, and not surprising... Uh, somebody like Greg Bonson completely disagreed with Meredith Klein's theology of intrusion, but I think that Klein's uh, Meredith Klein's doctrine of intrusion uh, is right because what he's saying is the theocracy is just a it's just a temporary, uh, in a sense, projection from the uh, the ultimate kingdom reality of heaven. So in a sense, the heavenly kingdom broke into time and space in a provisional form, meaning it was just temporary for a time and for a purpose. It was ultimately, therefore, symbolic. It was ultimately typological, and it was provisional. And because the theocracy is provisional, it's not just symbolism, right? What the theocracy accomplished facilitated real faith, and it had real-life uh, consequences and real-life application. But regardless of how uh, important the theocracy was in ancient Israel, it was nevertheless temporal, provisional, typological, and symbolic of something else. And what was that symbolic of? Not future theocracies, <laughs> not, a, not, not a repeat of the Mosaic order, <laughs> okay? This time, let's say, under the New Covenant order. No, 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 no. Uh, this is the failure of looking at redemptive history the right way. Yeah. Um, this, would result, this would result, Ryan, in a retrograde approach to redemptive history. You're going backwards in the, in the, in the activity, the work, the, the, the providence of God. You are, in a, in a sense, you're working against God's own redemptive development, redemptive history, and, and that. And so all of this, therefore, is culminating 
in what it exactly symbolized, what it foreshadowed, which was Christ, redemption, uh, which was, uh, to you, go back to Peter, First Peter chapter 2, right, verses 6 through 10, where now the church, invisibly and spiritually, the elect, we become, as uh, Peter says, we become the chosen race, we become a royal nation, we are a priesthood to our God. And so those, I, th- I think that's just a much better, more organic, faithful, natural reading of Scripture. And so uh, at the very end of this, uh, Ryan, you have Greg Bonson in uh, a Theonomy and Christian Ethics that he wrote long ago, uh, actually suggesting in some of those arguments that he makes in that book, actually suggesting that the entire Mosaic law, therefore, has abiding uh, application. He even uses the phrase, in exhaustive detail, which just runs contrary to Reformed theology and Christian theology. Uh, You know, I, I say Reformed theology only because it's important to point out that Westminster Confession 194, uh, in that confession, and also the London Baptist Confession is clear about this, um, that the civil and ceremonial aspects of the of the Mosaic Law have expired. <laughs> They've expired. I mean, and certainly uh, Bonson would not, uh, you know, he. I think he would try to agree with some of that, <laughs> but at the end of the day, all of his accommodations. I just think he dies the death of a thousand qualifications, and he just does not uh, adhere to what I believe to be the best of Reformed theology. So I don't know, we can go all day on this, but but it is important to talk about this, not just because, I mean, people know that I, I've i been uh, challenging theonomy recently, right? Like in the last year or two, I've been kind of challenging theonomy because it's made a very heavy resurgence. I mean, look, I mean, I was featured on Apologia because I've just barely mentioned theonomy on a sermon uh, and thanks to a brother that posted that little segment, uh, I ended up being featured on Apologia, although they never fe- finished the segment. Um, so it is absolutely relevant. And uh, I just think we need to really have a grasp on the original theocracy so that we can understand its proper place, the principles that belong to it, its proper place in the economy of God overall. That makes sense. And if we don't, then we're focused on reconstructing politics and reconstructing culture and our our biblical vision of heaven turns into I guess for lack of better terms it feels more like a a social reconstruct reconstructionist movement, you know, like I was saying earlier with, with Christianity sprinkled in and um it, it changes our purpose, as you said earlier, in, in the Great Commission. So, you know, if, if, we, if we press into yeah. that a little bit, what do we do then with politics? What do we do then with, with culture? Is it really just a matter of let's go out and make disciples, and if, you, if you're a, a true brother and you find yourself in politics, praise the Lord— you're serving the Lord Christ, and, and your, your mission there is still the same— um, make disciples. It's not for you to be a political leader who drives Christianity 
to the far reaches of the earth in the sense of Christian Reconstructionism. That is not our ultimate heaven, per se, to, to fix here and make it better, right? Well, I think that the issues are complicated, but I think what you're saying is right on, because um, not only do not only is Scripture not giving us all an obligation towards the political, mm-hmm. or what I've come to call political rationalism, okay? But Scripture is most certainly clearly giving us a pilgrim identity. Mm. And that pilgrim identity needs to be fully grasped by the church today. It does not mean that you check out. It doesn't mean you're not involved. It doesn't mean you don't evangelize. It doesn't mean you don't do missions. It doesn't mean you don't preach the gospel to every nation. But engaged pilgrims will always do those things. But no matter what we do, we do those things all the while knowing that we are head, we're on a journey. We are on a voyage of an eschatological kind. And that we're looking for, to quote Hebrews 11, we're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, a city that God has prepared for us. And so two things, two things here, Ryan. Number one, let me just finish here on the city of God, okay? Because particular to this view of Reconstructionism and a this-worldly kind of philosophy, I think that what that results in is kind of like a semi-city of God, a partial city of God. Mm. But that nowhere is that promised in Scripture. The only semi-realized city of God or partial city of God that we can even begin to talk about has to do with union with Christ. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, through Christ and in the new covenant, the author of Hebrews has clearly told us we have come to the city of the living God, to Zion. But that is speaking positionally in Jesus Christ in preparation for us to actually go to heaven and enter the heavenly Zion. And so that becomes very important. The other thing is this, Ryan, is that it begins to invert the teaching of Scripture that is really meant to be sort of a timeless, gnomic, um, kind of a universal experience of the church from here to the end of the age. And one of, those, one of those experiences, brother, is what Gerhardus Voss talks about in his biblical theology, and that is that as the theocracy expires and we enter into another stage of redemptive history, that is even at the loss of what he calls much political advantage and much political propaganda, okay? And you see this in the Bible, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Uh, verse 26 and following, we are told, consider your calling. Why? Because uh, God calls the foolish things of this world. And so what do you say? Not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, right? Not many, uh, you know, not, not many wise according to this world, you see? And so God does this in order to prove a point 
that he is not electing elite politicians, right? And he is not putting his people in those positions all over the globe. That's what I'm talking about in terms of rationalism. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we, we're not looking for that kind of advantage. The nature of Christianity can be seen through the cross. And through the cross, we're told in this very context in 1 Corinthians that the cross is utter folly to this world to this present evil age, to this world system. And we will always be kind of in that place of political disadvantage, and we should expect that. No matter what happens religiously, no matter the ups and downs and the rising and falling of nations, empires, states, okay? I mean, I think we've entered in a pretty unique time in history, but no matter how many nations and things come and go, I think the universal experience of the Christian will always look like what we find um, in passages like this and, and many, many others. And the example of Christ, in the example of the apostles, in the examples of the early church, that is what we can expect. That seems to be spot on in line with Scripture. What we see in Scripture is what we should expect in, in, in this world. It's just a, a different era, right? And... Um... Uh, it's, it is a fascinating topic to think about, especially because it challenges us to ask another question. How can we begin to recover the real biblical vision of heaven? We've talked about a, a number of topics here, and, and a lot of it had to do with the Reconstructionism point of view, but how do we then recover this? How do we have our own distinctly reformed recovery of a biblical vision of heaven. Well, I think that brings into view the whole notion of heaven from the very beginning. Hmm. We typically think about heaven as the end. And, and in a sense, we would be right to do that. But the best theologians that I have found and resonate with understand how seminal protology is. What is protology? Protology is the study of the first things, protos, logos. And protology is focusing in on the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 2, and 3, and there we already have a theology of heaven. We have an eschatology in the covenant of works. And that in the covenant of works, Adam has the potential for eternal, um, eschatological, and heavenly advancement into a new creation that is symbolized by both the tree of life and the Sabbath. And that those two icons become symbols for a life of a higher kind, Ryan, a life of a higher form, a higher form of life. Life before the throne of God, in the rest of God, in his eternal rest. And, you know, man, it, it really affects uh, the way that you look at the end. Uh, once you understand programmatically what was at stake 
for Adam, right? It wasn't that the mandate was to be obedient and that through his hands, Adam would build heaven (laughs) or a partial heaven, (laughs) okay? But that through obedience, by an act of the Spirit, Adam would eschatologically be translated to another realm, to a higher form of life. And I say through the Spirit because of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 49, where there we understand that Jesus, as the last Adam, becomes life-giving Spirit. He enters into total unity with the work of the Spirit, functional unity with the Spirit, in order to redeem, not just to redeem a people, but to advance a people so that, what does Paul say? So that they will bear the heavenly image. And so we have been, uh, we, we know what it is to bear the earthly image of Adam, but as we are, we, as we are risen and perfected in Christ, we will bear the heavenly image. And this this is something of the superstructure of the Bible. And for me personally, as people are listening to this, uh, for me personally, it was theologians like Edmund Clowney, G.K. Beale. Um, it was theologians like, um, you know, uh, Gerhardus Voss and Meredith Klein, of course, that really began to put this superstructure in front of me as, you know, the Bible teaches a one-step program of advancement, okay? We're not advancing toward the heavenly realms incrementally, little by little, little by little. The world's getting better and better and better and better. And and, and, and so what Greg Bonson uh, taught in uh, Theonomy is he says that evil will be reduced to negligible proportions. The evil will be reduced uh, to, uh, to proportions that are basically non-threatening um, and, and, and that won't, you know, so that sin and evil will be basically under control uh, before Jesus returns. And what, and what I would say is, no, uh, my reading is, is kind of the opposite. I, I think I see a great apostasy, I see tribulation, I see persecution, I see the rise of a system that is fundamentally antichrist. And so things like that. So the, all of that stuff, uh, you know, Ryan, all of that comes into play. And as as a student of the Bible, you really need to understand the superstructure of the Bible and how heaven is what the Bible begins with and not just ends with, right? And that the same reward that is potential for Adam, that same reward of a new creation of a Sabbath realm is the same reward that the book of Hebrews is talking about, that the book of Revelation is talking about, okay, that the New Testament is talking about. You need to understand typology and how typology works in a proper Christocentric way, right? Um, Because if not, you can make mistakes, Ryan, like thinking, well, the Great Commission, this is a common mistake by Reconstructionism, the Great Commission is something that we now uh, fulfill, and so taking dominion of the world, like Adam was supposed to, now that falls to us. We take dominion of the earth now. That's wrong. The, the dominion of Adam 
is fulfilled by the second Adam. Even as Romans 5 tells us that Christ, right, that Adam was basically a tupos, a type of Christ. That's uh, Romans chapter 5, verse uh, 13, I think 13, 14. But there we see that the Great Commission is not that Christians today will dominate the earth, okay, but that Jesus, through his cross work, death, burial, exaltation, resurrection, and exaltation, he has taken complete and total dominion because he's been exalted above all dominion, it says. So that would be like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and following. Uh, And so that Christological focus uh, and the understanding of what the new creation is, right, that the new creation is already not yet. The new creation is not the result of political activism. The new creation is not the result of scientific miracle tech that can heal the blind, the deaf, the mute, that can enable amputees to walk again. That is not bringing about the new creation, okay? And many, many other lines of reason that we can give, examples that we can give, that the new creation is not emerging because we transform transform Hollywood into a Christian version version of entertainment. Uh, that 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 is just not uh, that is not the emergence of a new creation. The new creation is the result of uh, being in Christ, number one, and number two, um, being in heaven, and that's it. That really is it. So I hope that's hope that's helpful uh, for Christians that are grappling. Maybe some Christians that have been kind of brought under a, a post-millennial paradigm, and they're thinking, it's my job to transform this world for Jesus Christ, when in reality, the only one who will truly transform this world is Jesus Christ. Right. And uh, so anyway, I think that's liberating. Yeah, and, and I take great comfort in that, that he is the one who, who does the transformation, right, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, just a final thought from, from my end as I was, I was coming into this. I'm thinking of John 14 where Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. And often what I see in this Reconstructionist-type view is that we're almost assuming that. Like, we're going to prepare the place. We're going to prepare the earth for heaven, or we're going to heavenize the earth in a sense, but Christ is the one who goes and prepares a place for us and returns, right? He returns and, and, and we're reunited with him. Is, is that a, am, am I being too liberal with that there? Or shouldn't, shouldn't that be on our minds to this, that he's the one, as you said, he brings about the change, he prepares the place and brings it to us, all glory be to God in Christ. Oh man, Brian, I think, I think you nailed it, brother. I think that passage there in John 14 is so relevant for this conversation. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about heaven. I mean, Jesus died and rose again in order to get heaven ready for us. Right. And, and the whole emphasis there is the greatest hope that we have is not that we get the earth ready for him. Mm. This is, Ryan, it is a complete, yeah. total... Um, shift of perspective here um it's a total recalibration 
of the Christian hope, in my opinion. And if you read that text carefully, he is Jesus is very specific that he is going. Nobody denies what that means. That means that that's that's referring to Jesus' exaltation at the right hand of God. When he, where he, in Daniel chapter 7, he's the son of man that's going to inherit a kingdom, everybody will serve him, right? And then there's no question that he's saying he is coming back for us. And that at his parousia, at his return, is when we inherit what he prepares. Um, there's really, abs- there's almost, there's no way you can turn that passage on its head in terms of the plain, perspicuous meaning of Scripture. So, I think, um, you know, I think some of these issues are important for uh, Christians to grasp, you know, as they're reading so much on the internet now, and and, and there's so many voices, and there's so many different perspectives on how the future is going to kind of play out, uh, what our worldview is in terms of culture and eschatology and all that stuff is is connected and related. So I'm glad we covered it. Yeah, it's been a great episode. Uh, our first one back in a while, as we said at the beginning of the podcast. So we encourage everyone to go back, listen to the first conversation we had on on heaven and interdimensional theology, as well as the others. Not a doubt in my mind, Ramos, that we're going to get questions on this, and I and I have a feeling another episode in the future uh, that revisits either the previous episode or some from this episode and, and just another way where this conversation remains an ongoing piece here will, will be a part of our future. So uh, if, you, if you see us at church or, or you know, um, maybe, maybe what we do is in the future too is set up a way to, to get some audience questions. We yeah, Facebook. I mean, we so, could get Facebook oh, yeah, uh, right. requests as well. Uh, yeah. We can do Q&A on Facebook, but, you know, uh, we'll have to do maybe an episode where we just handle Q&A. That'd be great. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, yeah. But I think that, I think that yeah, this, this conversation is certainly ongoing, but I think it's, it's, it's relevant. It's important. Absolutely. Well, encouraging nonetheless. Uh, thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.